0: This is a Kitty Pod production. Welcome to CR Crime, the only podcast that tells tales of true crime as they happened in New York's capital region. I'm your host, Jason Bullet. In this Thanksgiving special, We go outside of the 518 to profile one of the most notorious serial killers upstate New York has ever produced. Arthur Shawcross, who murdered a total of 13 people in two separate murder sprees over two separate decades. Before we get underway, your narrator would like to recognize the numerous sources for this episode, including a book called The Genesee River Killer by Dr. Joel Norris, The Misbegotten Son by Jack Olson, and Episodes 323 and 324 Inclusive of the popular Last Podcast on the Left, hosted by the trio of Marcus Parks, Henry Zabrowski, and Ben Kissel. On the occasion of his birth in Kittery, Maine in 1945, the two-month prematurely-born Arthur John Shawcross was described by his mother Elizabeth as, quote, a wee little bastard from the time he learned to walk. End quote. The wee little bastard and his family made their way to northern New York in his younger days, settling in the region's chief city of Watertown. Shawcross almost never cried because of an inability to do so since birth, sounding instead like a duck in heat. He admitted to being a frequent bedwetter during his childhood, and it was during that time he also had a lack of friends compensating for it by creating imaginary playmates during recess. Back to the former for a bit. According to psychiatrist J.M. MacDonald, bedwetting is considered one-third of his triad of sociopathy, which suggests that if at least two of these traits are present in a person, it's either a harbinger of or associated with homicidal behavior or violent tendencies in later life. As a child, Shawcross was a solid A and B student, despite both having an IQ of 86, which is in the below average range, and layer tests showing him a borderline retarded person. Just to point out, I used the R word, but in a quote. Apologies if anyone was offended. Shawcross also delighted in seeing other children cry. On occasion, he would bring an iron bar onto the school bus and use it to hit other kids. Not necessarily because he was an only child, he also displayed a constant need for attention, faking a knee injury and receiving a spinal tap test as a result. It turned out that he had been faking it the whole time. Also, Shawcross started being sexually active when he was only 9 years old, when his aunt reportedly gave him oral sex. But then again, he was a habitual liar, so who knows. Either way, this act of incest led to animal husbandry. This type of behavior continued throughout his life, getting more violent the older he got. When someone passed by his snow fort one winter's day and called it dumb, Shawcross responded by chucking an ice brick at said critic. Elizabeth had very few interactions with her son during his childhood. One time, she saw Arthur with his pant legs tucked into his socks and berated him for it. This infrequent interaction only had a further negative impact on his school performance, being held back to the point where he entered the 8th grade at the ripe age of 15. However, he wasn't long for school, dropping out a year later in favor of a life of crime and a diploma from the School of Hard Knocks. Shawcross began his criminal career by dabbling in a variety of crimes, such as but not limited to petty theft, robbery, shoplifting, and dramas where he played the role of Peeping Tom in a cast of three actors, two of whom were married couples doing what a city folk would call "knocking the boots. However, it was thanks to a series of head injuries suffered from childhood into adolescence that crossed him over from being a commoner garden criminal into a lean, mean murder machine. In one instance, during the brief time when he was a member of the track team, Shawcross was hit by a discus. In another instance, he was accidentally hit by a sledgehammer while working construction. All this only exacerbated his antisocial and criminal behaviors. As the old saying goes, every pot needs a lid. None of the four women who served as Shawcross' wife-slash-domestic partner could put a lid on a budding serial killer. In 1964, he married a woman named Sarah, whom he met while working at a store known as a Bargain Center, a store akin to Ocean State Job Lot, not a sponsor, or even Big Lots, likewise. When Shawcross was fired, Sarah quit her job at that store in solidarity. Stand by your man, indeed. Or perhaps. However, the relationship soon turned rocky, as he would spend more time at a local diner than at home with her and their infant son. The couple divorced two years later. Shawcross soon met and married another woman, Linda Neary, while working at a cottage cheese factory as a packer. During this time, it was revealed that he had stopped driving a car, preferring to either walk or ride his bicycle to work in other places after one of his classmates was killed in an automobile accident. Shawcross and Neary celebrated their marital union by going to the town of Clayton, just 20 miles to the north and hard by the St. Lawrence River, for a six-hour fishing trip. Fishing may have been his favorite hobby, but it would also prove a gateway into the realm of serial killers. But before all that, and in complete ignorance of his criminal past, the draft board selected Shawcross for enlistment into the United States Army in 1967. After boot camp, he briefly returned home for the aforementioned wedding, only to get shipped off to Vietnam sometime thereafter. Shawcross, who served in the 4th Supply and Transport Company of the 4th Infantry Division, thank you for your service, question killed 39 people during his stint in Indochina, but it was on unauthorized solo missions. At least that's what he'd want you to believe, as he was known to tell such tall tales to anyone who'd listen. In reality, he was actually a supply clerk, Responsible for giving out uniforms to the soldiers, who actually went into the jungle to fight the Viet Cong. Hey, I didn't get a gun. This is like the gun I used in Nam. You were in Vietnam, Cartman. Were you stationed in the After his hitch in the army came to an end, Shawcross returned home from Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where he was stationed as an armorer, and his marriage to Neary resumed. Though he wasn't aware that he had a wife until Elizabeth, his mother, told him so. This was probably a sign of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD for short. But again, with a person like Shawcross, that's certainly up for debate. His marriage soon ended like the last one, in divorce. Shawcross also started into the field of arson. His obsession with fire getting so that he light all the matches in a box one by one until the box was empty. It was at this point that a psychiatrist suggested commitment to a psychiatric facility, but Elizabeth wound up stating otherwise on consultation from Neary. Bad idea, Mom. Instead, he was sentenced to five years at the Attica Correctional Facility, being released in October 1971 after only 22 months in the joint. No word on whether he participated in the riots just one month earlier. Despite all that, Shawcross managed to both get a job with the Watertown Public Works Department and pull himself a third wife, a woman named Penny Sherbino, with whom she crossed paths at a department store after his release from Attica. After moving in with Sherbino and her two children from a previous marriage and with a third on the way, thus rendering Shawcross a stepfather, pray tell how long would that arrangement last, his behavior seemed to change into that for which he would become infamous. An example of this more threatening behavior occurred when he left a bouquet of flowers on a neighbor's front porch one day with a note saying, these are for your grave, Unbeknownst to Sherbino's two children, Shawcross exhibited even more gruesome behavior towards the younger set, getting rough and rowdy long before barstool sports made it a thing to the point of actual physical injury. Sadly, it was also a child who would become the first of Shawcross's victims. On April 7, 1972, Shawcross approached 10-year-old Jack Blake, not to be confused with Tenacious D frontman Jack Black, and asked him if he liked to go fishing with him, an offer which Blake eagerly accepted. Blake's mother told Shawcross to stay away from her son upon getting wind of this. To paraphrase a political mantra of a few years ago, she resisted, but he persisted. Or at least turned on its head. On another occasion, Shawcross dragged Blake and another boy to a market to purchase bacon, then all three shoved off to a nearby gravel quarry to fry up the bacon over an open fire. Once fed, he showed the boys pornography magazines and told them excruciatingly and goringly detailed yet horrid stories from his days in Vietnam. Both boys were finally scared off when he dangled Blake's friend, an unknown boy, over a quarry wall and threatened to drop him to his end if Blake didn't return. Blake eventually did, and the boys ran off to the sound of Shawcross laughing his fool head off. Exactly one month later, Jack Blake was murdered after Shawcross lured him into the woods hit him hard, and raped him. Shawcross gave no justification for the murder, talking it up to just not being up to discussing the murders to any real extent, though it was later sussed out that Blake didn't want to hang out with him anymore, and moreover, the latter covered the body for fear he would return to prison. Blake's body was discovered on September 2nd. By then, it was essentially a pile of bones. The Watertown police were called in to launch the investigation into Blake's murder, but didn't help the situation at all, going so far as to pin the blame on Blake's mother, given the family's rough reputation. The investigation, such as it was, ruled out Shaw Cross as his field was arson rather than child abuse, and thus the investigation ended after only two weeks. Little did they or anyone know how much the Watertown police department would be made to look like complete idiots. Sometime before the discovery of Blake's body, Shawcross scored his second child murder. This time, the victim was an 8-year-old girl named Karen Hill, who was visiting for the Labor Day weekend. Shawcross rode his 10-speed bicycle down Huntington Street and left it sitting on a fence. He then hid underneath a bridge and managed to lure Hill like a creepy, mentally diseased bridge troll. Should I even bother to tell you what happened next, even though you probably know the ending already? Okay, then. Here it is. Hill's body was found only the next morning, stuffed underneath some rocks, save for her head. Has all this made you sick to your stomach yet, even to the point where you've sworn off turkey dinner this Thanksgiving? It should. Unlike Blake, the state of Hill's body on Discovery made it a heck of a lot easier for the police to redeem themselves as far as both investigating the murder and finding the perpetrator. Police used a bloodhound to find Shawcross, who almost but not fully confessed to the murders of both Jack Blake and Karen Hill. On October 17th, Shawcross and William McCluskey, the district attorney of Jefferson County, struck a plea deal, sentencing Shawcross to 25 years in state prison for Blake's murder if he confessed to Hill's murder, which he did all while playing the PTSD-addled Vietnam veteran card. Shawcross was sent back to Attica, only to be transferred to the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Dutchess County before Thanksgiving 1972. According to psychiatrists at Greenhaven, Shawcross was described as suffering from no more than mild depression, though he exhibited behaviors unlike when he committed the two murders we've just discussed. Shawcross was also diagnosed as a, quote, "...schizophrenic psychopath," end quote, and had little concern for either his victims or their families. In this case, the lion cared not for the affairs of the lambs. To top it off, he also had what was termed an intermittent explosive personality, their words, not mine, and showed it off occasionally when he attacked corrections officers, either biting them or on one occasion shoving an inmate, setting his cell bed afire afterwards because the other inmates discovered he was a pedophile. The incidents with the CEOs were swept under the rug, and the inexperienced psychiatrist had differing opinions about Shawcross, with some saying that he had been making progress, while others took different, going so far as to declare him a, quote, menace to society, end quote. For his part, Shawcross wrote Sherbino from prison confessing to the two child murders, though he explained that he murdered Karen Hill because he thought getting pinched for defecating under the Huntington Street Bridge would break his parole. Owing to overcrowding in the New York State prison system at the time, the parole board made a gigantic blunder by going with the positive assessments and released Shawcross on parole in 1987 after serving only 15 years of his 25-year sentence. The parole board essentially put mental illness over criminal insanity in releasing Shawcross, and to that effect, an unknown parole officer said of him that he was, quote, probably the most dangerous man ever released into the community in many years, end quote. To quote comedian Dennis Miller about the late Charles Manson, what better way to signal to the bar that you've pulled your personal thing together and ready to walk the streets, huh? Chip, chip. The city of Rochester, New York, and its surrounding environments hold rather a special place in your narrator's heart. Back in the mid to late 1990s, he frequently visited the area with his parents, as his sister and the man who would later become her husband were students at Nazareth College in nearby Pittsford. As far as can be remembered, they rarely went into the Flower City, and if ever they did, Arthur Shawcross was long off the streets by then. Speaking of whom, Shawcross had fallen through the cracks as there were more arrests being made in the epic fail known as the War on Drugs, mainly from crack use down in New York City. Moreover, they also turned a blind eye to Shawcross missing meetings with his parole officer and assault on a female. In fact, they had more concern toward an unpaid $148 commissary tab, which Elizabeth, remember her from earlier in this story, managed to settle up. Shawcross relocated to Binghamton, the chief city in the state's southern tier. After he was spotted in a park, the townsfolk lit torches, not like the Proud Boys, and drove him out of town as though they were storming the castle wherein lived the Frankenstein monster. At this time, Shawcross had married his fourth and final wife, Rosemarie Wally, a Mormon who started a letter correspondence with him in prison and upon his release, divorced her husband. The couple then relocated to Wally's hometown, the bucolic college town of Delhi in Delaware County, but were also run out of town on a rail. In light of all this, the parole board had themselves quite a murderous tiger by the tail. Do they keep trying to relocate or just send Shawcross back to prison never again to see the light of day? In the end, the board made the fateful decision to relocate him to Rochester much to the chagrin of and without any word given to the local police department. Once on the shores of Lake Ontario and later settled into permanent digs at 241 Alexander Street, Shawcross found a job at a produce company and resumed telling tall tales of his time in Vietnam. It should become apparent by now, if it hasn't already, that Shawcross told more Whoppers in his day than Burger King, not a sponsor. When asked the real reason why he spent time in prison, he said that he was a mafia hitman. Also, his spate of antisocial behavior picked up again. He would exhibit violence toward part-time employees he didn't like and frequently made passes toward a young 20-something female co-worker named Loretta Neal. This developed into rather a bizarre relationship with her mother, Claire. One time, he borrowed her 1984 Dodge Omni and went for a long drive ending up in Rochester's red light district, such as it was, and laying the groundwork for his second and most prolific murder spree. It's unknown what really caused this, but according to Wally, his mother's disappointment in receiving a clock with an image of Jesus Christ on the cross as a Christmas gift in 1987 may have triggered it. On March 18, 1988, Shawcross, assuming the identity of a man named Mitch, picked up Dorothy Doxie Blackburn, a 27-year-old sex worker, for a $30 half-and-half session. All went pear-shaped when Shawcross's, shall we say, equipment failed them at a crucial moment. Neither Viagra, Cialis, or even Blue Chew had yet to be invented. All not sponsors. Shawcross claimed Blackburn bit the same genitalia while he sank his teeth into her labia, then choked her until she passed out. Blackburn woke up in the Omni sometime later, only to discover that Shawcross wasn't the same person with whom she got into the car. Shawcross drove to a bridge spanning Salmon Creek and raped and choked Blackburn to death. Her body was discovered six days later, on March 24th. Blackburn was the first of an astounding 11 prostitutes to meet their end at the hands of Shawcross, who was arrested on January 5, 1990, the day the bodies of Darlene Trippy, 32, and Marie Welch, 22, were found. In the interest of full inclusion and disclosure, the other eight victims were as follows. Anna Marie Steffen, 28, Dorothy Keeler, 59, Patricia Patty Ives, 25, June Stott, 30, Frances Fanny Brown, 22, Kimberly Logan, 30, Elizabeth Liz Gibson, 29, June Cicero, 33, and Felicia Stevens, age 20. All these women met their ends either via suffocation, strangulation, or just plain beatdowns. Only five days into the start of the last decade of the 20th century, Shawcross was voiding his bladder on the same bridge where the first victim's body was buried, standing near his car while doing so, when he was discovered by both an eyewitness and a police surveillance team. Upon discovery, Shawcross copped to the burial locations of two of the victims. According to retired detective Robert Keppel, the Rochester Police Department relied too much on modus operandi in bringing the Genesee River killer to justice rather leaning on minute differences in the victim's profiles, thus searching for multiple suspects before narrowing the list down. As 1990 entered its last months, the trial of Arthur Shawcross began in Monroe County Court with Judge Harold Wisner presiding it would become one of the longest and costliest trials in county history and was broadcast in its entirety on the local public access cable channel, only fueling its notoriety within the community. Also, unlike many of the trials that have been covered during this series, the jury gets some play here, as they manage to find something of a sense of humor during the trial, especially given the macabre circumstances. On the day after Halloween, the jury all wore matching bow ties. On another Friday, five members of the same jury wore jerseys of the University of Notre Dame football team as Judge Wisner, a UND alum, declared recess to that day's proceedings early so he could travel to South Bend, Indiana to watch the Fighting Irish play football there. And as if all that weren't enough, the atmosphere outside the courthouse had taken on the air of a carnival. Sometime before Thanksgiving, someone arrived at the courthouse to give a loaf of cranberry bread to Charles Siragusa, the prosecuting attorney. For his part, Shawcross even received 10 write-in votes in the state gubernatorial elections that November. It should be noted that the Monroe County Courthouse was where the trial for only 10 of the victim's murders took place. A trial for the murder of the 11th victim, Liz Gibson, took place at the Wayne County Courthouse in the Village of Lyons in March of 1991. But back to Rochester as we end that little digression. The aforementioned Siragusa contended that Shawcross suffered from what the New York Times termed as an antisocial disorder that does not excuse him from criminal behavior, further saying that he had formed a, quote, conscious objective to kill, end quote. Also, Dr. Park Dietz, a forensics expert, testified that Shawcross had only faked mental illness to avoid serving any more prison time, and moreover, in a videotaped interview, Shawcross had never heard voices in his head, nor did he have multiple personalities. Shawcross' defense team agreed with the antisocial behavior part, but clarified that he suffered from multiple personality disorder, nowadays known as dissociative identity disorder, brain damage, see earlier in the story, and to top it off, PTSD, see Vietnam Military Service Inn. Dr. Dorothy Ottnell lewis the defense's star expert witness, stated that Shawcross was hypnotized into reenacting an episode wherein a broom handle was shoved up his rear end, thus sodomizing him. While the video stunned those in the courtroom who saw it, they later agreed with the prosecution that he was just putting on a show. In some bizarre way, the video turned the trial against Shawcross's favor. In December of 1990, after only six and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of the ten murders. Three months later, after the region was released from the grips of an ice storm, he was found guilty in the murder of Liz Gibson in Wayne County Court. Unlike in the proceedings to the Northwest, wherein he pleaded not guilty at the start of the trial, Shawcross pled guilty and received a life sentence in state prison on top of the 250 years he received in the earlier trial, 10 years for each victim. Shawcross was sent to the Sullivan Correctional Facility, where towards the end of 2008, he complained of leg pain. He was sent to the Albany Medical Center, wherein he entered cardiac arrest. Shawcross died in the capital city on the night of November 10, 2008, at the age of 63 and at 10 minutes to 10 p.m. Thus ended the murderous life of the Genesee River killer, Arthur Shawcross, the most infamous serial killer Upstate New York has ever produced. Thanks for listening to this episode of C.R. Crime, the only podcast that tells tales of true crime as they happen in New York's capital region. I've been your host, Jason Bullitt. You can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcast, or your podcatcher of choosing. If your podcaster has rating and review capabilities, please give this podcast a five-star rating and a great write-up. This certainly helps me out. But more importantly, tell your friends about it. Until we meet again, which hopefully will be next week, I wish all of you a happy, safe, and I mean safe, and bountiful Thanksgiving. Please stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. After his hitch in the Army came to an end, even without Eric Cartman and his company, Shawcross returned home from Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where he was stationed as an armorer, and his marriage... I <laughs> guess that's the Cartman. Oh, South Park was so funny back in the day. After his hitch in the Army came to an end, Shawcross returned... <laughs> there I go again. Shawcross will reel a bit.